Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Cast Without Trace, a podcast without a trace. This is part two of our Brent Bellamy interview episode on world building. So if you haven't checked out part one, please do that before you listen to this one. should be available wherever you're listening to this episode. Without further ado, let's get back to the interview. vibes we're talking about world building and how do you involve players in world building at the table slash how do you work player buy-in session to session that's a really that's a fantastic i didn't i didn't expect us to be <laughs> yeah. facing questions like um that. i definitely um, can't I, you want to go first answer, yeah yeah I, I definitely can't answer um how do i keep players initiated from session to session because i think that's going to provide some spoilers for uh jason as as a player in that campaign um but uh including people into the world building um i have certain character arcs for places of power and certain positions um and then certain regulations in in the world that have to like stay static but other things are left a little bit more open so that when they do come up with an idea it's a collaborative effort to define the details of that part of the world. And then that becomes a more detailed and fleshed out part of the world. So like I had these um, in the Isles of Hebridean, there are like like five, um, you know, main islands. Um, And then each of those islands kind of like, they're surrounded by like some smaller ones. Um, And those smaller ones are like ancillary and they're run by like the regional governments of the main islands. Um, but because they are further away and because they are more secluded and whatnot, um, you know, one of my players wanted to have, uh, they wanted to be, uh, from a small village, um, in a more lawless area. So then I was like, okay, well then these smaller islands, maybe those can be more lawless because, you know, the, the, the central, like the, the Thanes of each of the, um, sorry, the Jarls of, of each of the, um, provinces don't really care about the outskirts of their province because it's not as economically feasible, right? And so bringing that together then brings the vibes that they want to bring into a certain area, and then it kind of builds from there. Yeah, in terms of, like, I, I think there's there there's a level to which um, buying players into your campaign world is partly making them collaborative world builders, right? Where... Um, they have like like Dunk, like Dunk was saying, they have these ideas, and you you in, you include them, and you try and make them work into your world. Um, but I, I have a really like the example that I always think about in terms of like taking a character and like really making the player who's playing them invested in the world is um, I, I I always encourage players to um, when they're thinking of a backstory, only think of the things their character would know and leave certain aspects just wide open, right? Just like I I don't I like there's this thing that happened to me, but I don't really know about it like that's up to you so the one that i always think about is uh, my brother i was playing a game uh, or i was running a game um where my brother decided he was going to be a fire genasi wizard um but he always he wasn't always a fire genasi um he was like in this uh this institution like this this basically university where they were doing like 
some pretty not great experiments on like a fire elemental there was a like a, a basically a magical mishap um and then like crazy stuff happened he was like the only survivor as far as he knew but he was transformed from a human into a fire genasi because of the the event um and when we rolled on the trinket table in the in the in the player's handbook which i think is like i think it's one of the most underrated two pages in any D&D book, um, he rolled that he had this, like, amulet, like, this gold amulet, like a necklace. And he was just like, oh, I don't know, like, what if it was just, like, what if there was, like, a symbol of a rat on it or something? Like, I don't know. Like, what if I, I just found it, like, in the in the rummage, like, I just found it, I put it on, like, I just keep it with me, like, as, as a reminder or whatever. And I was like, okay, I can work with that. So in the setting, what I had happen was... Um, it was like a it was like an Eastern European inspired uh, situation, um, and in the larger towns, uh, they had this. Like, it was basically like a lot of taverns would have this incentive for people to go out and catch rats, because like they, basically there was like ver- huge vermin infestations in these towns, and they would like incentivize just random people to go out and like try and solve the problem. So his wizard was out there just like, you know, trying to collect rats, and all, he picks one up, and it wild shapes back into a human, who's like wearing the same amulet that he had on his person and all like it was that like i saw in his eyes i saw it click where he was like oh i made a decision in my character creation that impacted world building in a way that i could not have anticipated like all of a sudden he was like oh well now now obviously i have to figure out what the hell's going on here because why is like why is this person have the same symbol what what were they were they in this building what were they doing there blah 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 right so Giving players the the ability to like be actively involved in world building is important, but I think there's also a passive element where they can come up with an idea and just be like, "Hey, you run with this, but it'll come back to bite you later, right?" Like, it, I think that's really important. Like as a DM, I learned that from the first person that ever ran D and D for me. It's just like come up with things that can like basically like come up with knives that I can stab you in the back with later. And I think that's just like as long as players are into it, I think that that really helps uh, the buy in for players. Yeah, I liked the come back to bite you later because it's a rat yeah yeah. <laughs> um, yeah like even my first dnd character was uh he was on the run from like he, he he was recruited into a circus and then left when he figured out it was a cult to like a, a demon of entertainment and i just i was just like hey here's all these npcs that i knew that i'm on the run from you do with that what you will and that you know <laughs> like um i think there's there's a certain element of just like if you give your dm as long as they're a good dm you know and i think anyone has the potential to be if you, as long if you give your DM things to grab onto, then they they will. Um, yeah. So I think that's important Actually, as a player to keep in mind. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because something I, I I didn't fully think about in, in my answer, but something that I do actively do. Um, that's I think a, a slightly more active uh, approach to what you were saying is I always ask for uh, what was referred to me by one of my first uh, DMs is a AAA. Uh, which stands for uh, allies, uh, acquaintances, and adversaries. Um, and so each player kind of comes up ideally with with three uh, for each of these categories, like three people that will help you uh, when you need help, um, three people that you know and might help you for like a price or a, like a, a tit for tat, and then three people who really just fucking hate your guts. Um, and utilizing those as NPCs into the world and adjusting them uh, to be cohesive and natural in that world is so much fun because it really does keep like uh, like when a player gets a letter from one of their acquaintances or one of their allies asking for help or something um, that motivates them towards the next session 
right? And it gets them intrigued in in that way. Um, and it it just gets really exciting. I think I think the adversary part of that is the thing that intrigues me the most because I especially with new players, they don't really think about character flaws. Um, but if you if you're forced to think about why NPCs would not like your character, I think that really helps. Even even someone who's experienced with D anD D and someone who has made like a billion characters, I think thinking about why someone wouldn't like you, I think really helps define your character. So I think I think that's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's definitely a fun element. Um, I I I think it's actually really interesting that you mentioned what which one is your favorite because I find that everyone I I introduce this idea to, especially players, um, they always have they always have a favorite, uh, whether or not they say it. Um, either they will like overtly say like, oh, this is what's most interesting to me or the amount of work that they put into one of those categories versus the others really tells you what's going on. Because like the idea of acquaintances, like that like slight balance and such really intrigued me. So I had some like people that were friends, but then like, you know, I did something kind of shitty or whatever and left things open ended um, so that the friendship is more like complex and nuanced. Right. And then when that character comes back, it's just like, hey. You remember that gold that you stole from me? And then when you left me for dead? Yeah, that was fun. You want to make it up to me? You know, things like that. It was, like, super fun as a player. I'm definitely going to take that idea, the AAA idea. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, that's really good. it's not it's not originally mine. Um, I stole it, and it's definitely worth stealing. Well, I, I think that's what D&D is, right? DMing is just, again, it's about the quality of the things that you steal. So The thing, the thing that I stole... Uh, I stole from uh, another podcast called Fear of a Black Dragon, which is like a couple story gamers review old school modules. Uh, it's totally a joy to listen to. Um, they do deep dives on different topics in each one. But one of the things they often talk about is this idea of uh, getting players to set the scene. So entering a tavern or entering a dark dark wood you kind of whatever it is you give a little bit of the vibe you're like this is this is what this place is this is a seedy place uh, but the food smells really good you know that's the sort of check you give them for the tavern you're like what do you notice what does your character notice in the scene and by the time each person said one thing it's this like the same thing that we would try to do in critical world building it's like everyone's kind of synchronized their imagination a little bit better and so they've contributed to what this place is like but you're also all in the scene in a different way. And I find it, it helps me as a GM too, to sort of understand where, what they're sort of thinking in the moment or how they're kind of perceiving things. Yeah, I think there's, um, I think the best example of that I've ever seen, um, I don't know if you guys have been keeping up with the new season of Adventure Zone, um, but they, uh, the, the scene where they come across what is going to be their ship and the Griffin just has them go around and say like, hey, what color is the ship? What is the one noticeable thing? What kind of weapons does it have? Like, have I'm stealing that 100%, especially in this game where, like, I'm going to have airships. Like, I'm going to, I'm just going to steal the scene 100%. I'm just going to be like, hey, what color is the wood on this airship? Like, I think that is such an important tool to have people buy into the game that they're playing because they, they have a, they've had, not only have I had an impact on the world, but it's, like, tangible and it will impact them immediately, right? And, like, it's in the moment um which i think is really important yeah definitely um oh and if, if we to... want to talk about stealing and if we're talking about uh taz ether c 
um, I, I I will mention um, if if stealing is flattery in D anD D, then I am very flattered by Travis McElroy, who one thousand percent just <laughs> stole uh, my character JJ yeah, from character, Folks yeah. and Fables. Although I will not be suing um, because. Obviously well, as not. long as they give you a spot on Taz, I'm sure. Yeah, as, right? as long as I yeah. become one of the McElroy brothers, it'll be fine. Um, well, yeah, you know, parasocial brother. But yeah, no, <laughs> just the McElroy. fact that they, they went eloquence barred with a uh, well, no, he's sage whispers. background. He's whispers. Everyone thought he was going to go No, uh, he's, he said, he said, he he said uh, eloquence, and he used the... Um, oh, it? I'm almost certain he went... Oh, whatever. It doesn't matter, but yeah. I'm almost certain he went... I don't know. Still, Bard with uh, I, what I thought was eloquence, Bard, because he had the reliable talent. Um, but maybe he switched out. I'm not sure. Um, but with a shitty French accent and a sage background, um, like that, that 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 is the three character points of JJ. <laughs> JJ, like Jean Jacques, is a a better name than Devo. I'm just gonna say it right here. Oh yeah, because it's not a virtue name. Yep. Sorry, sorry, all tiefling fans, but virtue names are <laughs> not as interesting as people think. But I had I had a couple more questions that I wanted to ask you actually about um about Dungeons and Dragons to kind of you know get us back on on the actual um the world building elements um because you have a lot of experience both as a DM and as a player. I wanted to ask you how you think being a DM makes you a better player and vice versa. That's a great question. I sometimes. I find it's really like, especially in these groups where sometimes I'm GMing and sometimes I'm playing in the same with the same group. It's really challenging to be a player. Uh, and as a GM, I often find like I can see, or I, I experience a, a broader swath of like why other characters are doing things, or you know, just like getting to know kind of what's going on and be able to direct things in certain ways feels more comfortable at times than being a player even although i love i love playing a pc um i think one thing that it can do at first and i had to learn my way out of this would be to try to like think like a gm and try to understand what's going on and sometimes this even happened earlier in a session this week i sort of like um Uh, Peter Steele has come to Irontown and is introducing a gigafactory to produce chippies, which are basically cell phones, and as like hiring a bunch of the labor pool there. And we were given a tour of it. And I kept thinking, uh, and I was playing my like Vinteraf Rune Knight Ulud, which is, she's seal folk. And uh, she's a sailor background. So she's just like, wait like she was waiting for the fight to happen in this place and she was waiting for them to try and ambush us or something and then we just got through to like the big old cafeteria where there's like a living wall of herbs to put on your meals and like bento boxes and like just went and tore into the sushi basically and that was fun but i thought like i was like what's when when are we gonna like i was waiting and that it it didn't happen uh, old Higgy, who's uh, an old timer at the Red Flagon, decided to become the night watchman, and we, we we walked him up to his shift and sat and made sure he was okay overnight, and like nothing happened. So I'm like, well, what is, where, like, as a GM, I would be like, this is great, I'm building tension. But as the player, I'm like, what? <laughs> when do I, when do I get to smash things? But it's also just because of that, because of playing Ulud, like that's what she's about. So, 
uh, it's like in retrospect and practicing some mindfulness, I'm like, oh yeah, I was having fun. That was good. But in the moment <laughs> I was sort of like, wait, when, when is this going to be the thing that I'm here for? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I actually ha- like had a debrief with one of the other players uh, the next day and they helped me like understand the whole thing but there's a little bit of a lurch sometimes in the transition sort of what i'm saying and it's good to remember like hey we're just playing a game here you know i i may be laid back as a teacher but i have this like secret intensity <laughs> about D. <laughs> it's maybe not so secret if i'm playing so many games a week and happy to talk about it for hours like we all know this intensity it's real and it's like maybe maybe uh i don't i don't know if i have any concrete advice but advice for myself would be like remember that this is just something you're doing for fun and try to find a way to bend it towards what's fun for you yeah i think i I mean i think that's just i I think remembering that it's a game where everyone's there to have fun i think is probably the most important thing because every every post on the top of every D &D subreddit ever is just like oh i'm you know my player did xyz and like how do we talk about it it's just like you guys need to remember that this is just a game that you guys are you know you guys are trying to have a good time so do your best to do that (laughs) um the only other thing that i really wanted to ask you um was about um in terms of like when you play D &D, because you mentioned a lot of um like the pre-written modules um what compels you more is it the is it working with a pre-built system that you can kind of add on to like a pre-built world that you can add on to or is it starting from scratch in terms of world building when you're dming at least uh as i mentioned before i find kind of building something with others much more compelling than when i've tried to sit down and make something by myself it always feels incomplete if it's on my own uh, that doesn't mean I don't do it or have ideas about it, but I always feel like I'm missing a few key things. So even we're just working with players to come up with the world to some degree. Um, like we played uh, Avery Alder's game, A Quiet Year, in world building class. And something like that, I thought, uh, I mean, that's what they did in in this, uh, in this C, right? They played The Quiet Year to build the story world. I think that's something that really appeals to me. Um, yeah, I find that... Uh, I totally lost my train of thought. It's all good. I just, because um, what, what I'm curious about is, um, like we talk about world building, uh, really like, do you find when you're running something like, uh, like a pre-built module like Storm King's Thunder or Curse of Strahd or whatever uh, it happens to be, does it feel like you're almost doing collaborative world building with wizards of the coast in like a weird parasocial way or it, do you prefer like just doing it purely with your with your players right like having that um like starting from nothing and just being like well what would you find compelling in this world yeah that's a, that's great and thank you the the piece i lost was the pre-built piece right. uh, just like that's okay that's um good. uh i should look up actually the uh i i learned about this uh creator um who's just amazing uh on fear of a black dragon they built um the skyblind spire uh which is a wizard's tower there's a kind of puzzle to getting through it but one of the tricks is that um, when you spend enough time there you can no longer see the color blue and there are these goblins who figured this out and what run around with these big blue cloaks 
so that if you if they throw them <laughs> over, they become invisible. Yeah, I'm gonna I'll look up the reference. I'll look up the reference, and you can put it in the show notes. But so sometimes there's like system agnostic modules that are just amazing and get your imagination going, and it's just like this is a tight setting that you can introduce and work an adventure around. And I've used a couple adventures adventures from this creator, and those are always a joy to work in. Um, also, uh, there's a couple books called by Kobold Press called Prepared that I've used quite a bit. And shout out to my friend Mishan because he does the maps for those. He's awesome. And he actually did maps for my Salt Marsh game when they took over the this this house. He did maps for me, which was awesome. But uh, yeah, I mean, I love Ghosts of Salt Marsh. It kind of depends on the module, and that is like taking old modules and redesigning them. And I really like the work they did to provide a lot of background for this the city itself is great. And there are adventures in the back that are like there's three key settings, and each one has four developed hooks for it. Like here's a little adventure you could run if they're level twelve or if they're level eight, and those are awesome. Like I would love to see more of this kind of adventure design from Wizards rather than it being like locked in, right? Um, I've also run a lot of Mike Shea's stuff like from Fantastic uh, Adventures and I have Fantastic Layers as well that I'm gonna be using. And so I like these sort of really small pre-builds is kind of what I'm saying. And I have only run Salt Marsh, which is a bunch of pre-built, like smaller arcs, right? I've never run one of the big books and I'm not really personally very keen on it like i think what's great about salt marsh is it can really draw in the character backstories because they've all thought about being from this place and what it means to them and where they're from and so in between adventures there's a lot of room for those things to fit in although i've seen that like i've played through um uh dragon heist and now storm king's thunder and i'm seeing how that can work in a kind of longer adventure but i haven't run any of the big ones so I think pre-builds are, are great and they're really good for when I was running one shots, I would use them, but it, you know, it's also fun just to come up with something like basically, do I have a kernel of an idea that's really exciting to me? Uh, if so, then I can make that happen. But sometimes it's like, oh, maybe I'll just use a pre-built and then tweak it a bit and, and work with, I like that way, the way you put it, Jason, like you're collaborating with the designer um, of the of the work to kind of come up with something that fits in your, in your story world. Yeah. Um, I don't, the only other thing that I wanted to ask, cause I'm, I'm always curious to get this from, from other DMS. Um, I feel like there's, there's a list of skill sets that like you can employ as a DM that are like the most important to you. So for example, um, like I follow someone who, um, they always maintain that like the thing they prep the most is just NPCs. Um, because like they, they don't really prep locations or stories or plot lines. They're just like, as long as I have fleshed out characters in the world, we can make something work. Um, in my experience, like the thing that I like to focus on the most is making the world feel real. So basically like dropping my players into a location and just saying, if you go in whatever direction, you're going to find something interesting and having them trust that that's true. Is there one thing when you run D and D that you kind of focus on that's like that? Yeah, for me, and having just started a new arc, uh, there's two things that kind of go together. One is having the right music to set the mood. I love that. I often use uh, music cues to try and bring people into the vibe of the session. Um, 
and also this is just something i'm taking from mike che but secrets and clues like i have a big list of secrets and clues and so uh you know in this little downtime thing we did i would just be looking through that i'm like oh what are you doing oh well actually you also notice that this other thing is happening and and the fact that it's happening not in session then the players can come back and bring that to the table themselves and so the hooks are not coming from me so uh that's going back to the immersion thing but i like to have secrets and clues npcs i know it's important to have a list of names and i just always i make people come up with names so <laughs> they rolled a random encounter in the city uh in my intrigue game and it was that a medical emergency uh and so a woman was actually giving birth and the yes and of the scene meant that the uh fighter and the artificer were there they were going to city hall but the artificer's like a noble background so he's like oh surely i there's a doctor's office around here and he rolled for it and it was like well there you don't know where your doctor's office is because he always comes to you but you do see oh, your doctor cool. right there uh uh <laughs> what's i was like what's their name and he was like oh uh dr her and then someone else was like oh they must be dragonborn and I was like, yeah, they've got a monocle, <laughs> Dragonborn. Someone else dropped an NPC picture into our Discord chat. And I was like, that's him. <laughs> and then he comes up and he's like, oh, well, yes. And the artificer pays to have him like assist this woman. And he's like, yes, we must make sure the shell comes out intact. Uh, or the egg comes out intact. And and the party's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I've only, I've only ever, you know, it's Dragonborn, right? <laughs> Yeah. How many eggs you got in there? Yeah, and so, that's, that's like, funny. It went from this sort of just a random event to like, here's this NPC in the world, and the players are concerned, but it turns out this guy had another appointment to keep. So he just dropped them off with the nurse, and then they went to check in on her later, and the nurse is like, oh, yeah, he doesn't do anything. We do all the work around here. Uh, and the. Sounds really <laughs> the ba- They're going to name the babies after Drachna and Darren's who helps out and then Drachna's like holding the baby i'm like roll a d6 to see how like you know how <laughs> that goes and she rolled which is just like a six is good and a one is bad and everything else is fine uh so she rolled a six and i was like oh this baby really settles in and it just this super weird set of circumstances led to this really amazing in character thing uh through all of the things we know like the the yes ending making players come up with stuff on the fly um random tables move it makes the city feel alive and and real uh and it's almost like yeah just having a certain set of conditions for me i don't i don't need a list of npcs that i fleshed out because in the moment one of the things that i don't find too difficult is just like telling people to come up with things and so that i get enough of a sense of who this person is and then once you have it it locks in and now i'm like i'm not gonna forget this guy dr dr yeah there you go duncan was there anything else that you had for for brent uh yeah i had a quick question and then possibly a more open longer question um firstly the the quick question um this is something that always uh intrigues me to ask about people have like a more lengthy experience with D&D, but especially uh, those who come from a literary background. Um, so uh, I'll just preface this by saying uh, one of uh, one of my previous players has uh, 
effectively but uh they they created a character that was a uh battlemaster fighter uh who took the dueling uh style um or the duelist uh fighting style uh and so kept two swords uh one steel and one silver uh he had long white hair and a adopted uh orphan child that was his responsibility um and uh the name of that character was Geralt um which we all affectionately refer to as Barrel to Bivia uh because it was just so clearly a uh Witcher uh ripoff and so um I've definitely seen the temptation to do these things uh coming from someone who consumes a lot of narrative and media so I guess my question is um has there ever been a time where you have completely ripped off a character from some sort of media that you have consumed or studied yes i have done it twice uh once we uh were visiting friends my partner and i visiting friends in vancouver and got to play in my friend marshall's game and uh i made uh basically uh wasn't a tabaxi but was basically a tabaxi bard just it was a halfling reskinned um but i based them on uh reaper cheap from you know c.s lewis so it was weird like wasn't a rat like so it wasn't the like perfect look but the character and personality was this i'm small little kitty cat but big personality uh kind of thing and that was specifically motivated because everybody had a pop culture reference for their character so the paladin uh played by uh Marshall's partner Jamie was based on Sailor Moon and saw me as this little cat. I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so the weird contingency thing going on there. But more recently in the Dragon uh, Heist game, I played uh, a fighter um, battlemaster who was uh, used to be a bounty hunter and um, was named Dawn Bottle Service. Uh, he's like, we bring it to you. It was his whole thing, but he's basically Nick Kroll's character from the Kroll show of uh, of uh, Bobby Bottle Service, who's the ghost bouncer. <laughs> and that was really fun because it was less about being Bobby Bottle Service and more about just like the stupid stuff that Bobby, Bobby Bottle Service says. So Dom was just like really wise and really dumb. So high whiz, low int, battle master, uh yeah it was a blast to play that character i love him so much and he can come back like that uh but yeah those are those are two examples maybe not what you would have expected from me but there they are not necessarily no i i think i was definitely expecting something more um from i guess i would say maybe like more recent or more genre specific uh content right like that i would have been like some sort of elf with a little green cap and a, a super yeah, like powerful a, magic sword and yeah like zelda. a minish cap if you were zelda. Yeah. yes yeah yeah well i think link but uh just because no, i don't want to zelda's the boy zelda, well oh man our twitter is gonna blow up um <laughs> here's the, here's the, the main character of legend of zelda is zelda um but zelda's a girl um i can't but... i can't i can't not say this is a bit like I can't, I can't bear to hold this, but like, I lo- I love the Zelda's a boy. Uh, well, I mean, Twitter I'm fight. Fully it's a couple on, of like, years old. It's a couple of years yeah, old. It's, it's an it's, old it's reference. A bit of a, it's you're, a bit of a you're up one. to date, I'm, like, 
more, more unironically, I'm fully on board that Link is trans because that's been all over the internet recently, and okay. I fully am. I'm fully in agreement with at least Breath of the Wild. Link is 100% trans. 100%. Oh, I I 100% see Breath of the Wild Link as just non-binary or just yeah. like super femme. There, like there, there is there, like gender is very <laughs> loosey goosey for Link, and I've always appreciated that. Yeah, I feel like Absolutely. it may have gotten a little off topic, but I'm not sure how it happened. Perhaps, perhaps. No, Um, I I doubt it. I doubt it. uh, I I think it was definitely all of us. Um, But I guess uh, one of my, I I guess my last question, uh, which might be a little bit more nuanced and and, uh, open-ended is, um, you know, you mentioned before uh, your uh, sort of red flag and bar and the uh, the vibes of of that campaign and the way that you kind of all work that together. Um, That is, I think, very um, not surprising given the uh you know research that you've done with imaginations um and the articles that you posted there critiquing a lot of modern uh culture and uh consumption through like a marxist lens um but you have a lot of focus in your work about like sort of post um i guess post capitalism or post climate crisis uh, sort of work with consumption and uh, you know those topics in in literature and how they convey the the anxieties of of the modern times, and so I guess I was wondering if that has ever been an influence for your world building. Like, have you ever looked at something that is very you know anti-consumption, or have you put those themes into y- any of your world building, and how have you done that? Yeah, I mean, explicitly, uh, the red flag and is a space where the player characters are trying to bring about uh, a revolution and trying to uh, bring about a world where we can have from each according to their ability and to each according to their needs. So it's a kind of like, it's interesting because like in terms of narrative, I might try to think about science fiction world building and how it helps us sort of like imagine possibility utopian possibilities that are beyond capital or that can critique capital in some way and it's less the content like the kind of solutions we come up with in the red flag in game like how we defeat the we're going to defeat the bad guys that's how dnd works like we might be we might, might be consequences to it uh our pcs might be threatened or come under duress but like we're gonna kind of like move on and level up and that's sort of how that works but the um, way that we're playing and the way that that we're world building and storytelling um, I think has something like the collaborative nature of it uh, is actually where maybe some of the um, the uh, you know anti-capitalist sentiment can really be there like in the form itself uh, to a degree. And I think there's probably, uh, though there's definitely tabletop games that do this um, kind of challenging of how we how we spend time together in, in interesting ways. But uh, one of the points one of the GMs slash players in the game will often bring up is like, the time in his life he played the most D&D was when he was in college and super broke. And all of his friends he lived with were super broke. And they would be like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Oh, not much. Like, you want to play some D? And then they would play, you know, like D&D all night. They played like three or four nights a week because it was like 
it didn't cost anything and yeah. it was super engaging so it's interesting that there's like wizards is hasbro is huge you know D is big business we know that not only did critical role have this massively successful kickstarter and to make a tv version of one of the arcs from campaign one but also like amazon is going to be releasing it yeah um not only that but they also were the highest grossing yep twitch streamers 9.6 uh, million a year. yeah yeah it's crazy yeah. and that's that's after twitch's cut so that's like that's a corporation man yeah like, yeah it's, it's hard to deny it and that yeah, that's after now, they got they, sued they... too <laughs> yeah that's after they <laughs> full circle so what i'm saying is it's like it's both it's like big money there's big money in tabletop gaming but obviously not for everyone this is highly like uneven as you well know um but there's also like a kind of uh utopian in a good sense in the sense of like imagining alternatives to the present state of things right um or critiquing the present state of things that uh that is there too and it's got both you know got both sides because that's the world has both things right now wow yeah i <laughs> guess i write that down and put it in a book or something yeah, actually, speaking of books, um, I guess uh, you've uh, recently published a, a, a work, the Ecotopian Lexicon. Would you like to maybe mention that to our to our yeah, many many some, hundreds of, of listeners? Yeah, sure, help sure, your sales. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so uh, an Ecotopian Lexicon is uh, a kind of world building effort in its own right. Um, there are forty five contributors, I believe, and fifteen artists. Uh, and it basically, the prompt is, what's a word that isn't used in English commonly that should be um, in order to kind of struggle for a more environmentally just future or, uh, yeah, to kind of produce a, a more environmentally equitable world. Um, and so I can give you a couple examples right off the top that like, uh, Randall Amster wrote wrote about the term blockadia, which comes out of like anti-pipeline struggles and extractivist struggles. Um, and I know Naomi Klein's written about it before too, but yeah, basically just this like blockadia describes not a specific blockade, but a mindset of, of block of blockage, of of stopping extraction of resources um, in that that are kind of drawn out of the earth in a violent way um so there's that kind of thing or you go to melody Jew, who offers uh a word which is pronounced by blowing a stream of air across the back of your hand and is represented typographically as squiggle asterisk squiggle uh which she borrows from uh i'm all, i always i can't say this word right but cetacean like from dolphin uh and this is dolphin's will um, buzz each other in the water. And so Melody kind of thinks about the way that we buzz each other through our devices, electronic devices, um, to kind of signal things to one another and does a kind of like uh, critique in the generative sense, critique of the terrestrial bias of language and thinks about what language means in other mediums uh, as a media scholar, that's her kind of thing. So it's really speculative 
and people have asked like well, do you think people should take up these terms to use and i'm like well if they find them meaningful and useful and helpful then they might take them up but it's part of the experiment just to sort of like jog our brains to think about language a little bit differently and get outside of the kind of ruts that we we think through um and that's sort of the project with an ecotopian lexicon mm -hmm. yeah it's been uh, super interesting to hear about it and uh it's definitely something that i'm looking forward to tackling uh this winter break um and then of course you also have uh remainders of the american century yeah so this uh thanks for bringing all this up too dunk i appreciate it um remainders of the american century is my own uh, it's not an edited collection. It's my own book about uh, post-apocalyptic storytelling, uh, mostly in the U.S., but I mentioned some Canadian titles as well. And it's just sort of trying to come to terms with the kind of bloom of publishing post-apocalyptic novels sort of from the end of World War II into the 21st century. And so I look at the kind of the changes to publishing that took place in that time period and I think about apocalypse tropes, like, um, for instance, we're all familiar with the idea of like uh, a nuclear bug, a bunker, right? But um, that doesn't really need to be a thing until the mid-century. And yet it's so fe pre prevalently featured in these kind of narratives now. And so how do things go from the real world into the imaginary and then get rooted as tropes so deeply is one of the things that the book is thinking about. Other examples would be like the sort of last person, I call it the book Last Man because it so often is men that survive the apocalypse and have to sort of soldier on. And so I kind of critique that survivalist mindset uh, in the book or consider it at least and ask about its roots and its effects on American culture. Mm -hmm. where, can, uh, where can people get that, by the way, just out of curiosity? Oh, uh, I'm pretty sure it's available like at most big <laughs> uh, booksellers. Um, you can't order it directly from HFS Books um, the, through the through the publisher there. Uh, they're kind of a distributor for Wesleyan University Press, but it is a, a thankfully some academic books are like, oh, this is a hundred dollars for this paperback. Uh, thankfully, Wesleyan has a pretty good model, so. Um, it's not, if you're interested in post-apocalyptic stuff, uh, and are interested in reading an academic monograph on the subject, uh, it could be for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to be tackling it. Uh, I, I pre-ordered my yeah. copy. I'm going to, I'm going to hit this one too, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, Thanks, I, yeah, I, I, I did my pre-order and, um, when it, when it came, I like my, my mom, uh, texted me saying like, oh yeah, I came to, uh, came to our house and I was like, I, I just got so giddy with joy. Um, I'm I'm really excited to be looking into it, but I guess uh, you know uh, synthesizing kind of the two topics that you're referring to here with the ectopian lexicon and then uh, the remainders of the American century, um, you know there's a lot of debate around uh, a certain term that has been used more and more recently with uh, you know end stage capitalism and that's um, the uh, notion of the Anthropocene rather than the Holocene, um, and so I guess uh, my, I guess the exit question that I have for you is um, you know, do you think that we are currently within the Anthropocene? And uh, how do you feel about that? Well, if the Anthropocene is signaled by a moment where 
human beings writ large somehow, although we know it's really just like a small number of corporate entities that are making this kind of impact. But the Anthropocene says that human beings have the largest geologic impact on the planet. That's the kind of turning point, right? That there would be, uh, we would have more of a record in the strata than any anyone else, any other force or entity, uh, physical or animal or vegetal um, at this point. And so I think that's just sort of a point that probably if it's true, it's true, right? Um, but as a kind of cultural studies scholar, I would want to say, well, especially given my discussion of what words we use and how language is important, what does it mean to call it the Anthropocene uh, and to think about it in those terms? Like, what does that term make possible for us? For instance, what would it, when would the Anthropocene end? What would the end of the Anthropocene look like? Is that something we can ever attain? Like, for instance, if some people have argued um, Donna Haraway that we refer to it as the Cthulhu scene, uh, which you could go and, and look into, but there's a kind of provocation there to sort of intervene and think about things becoming kind of weird and more hybrid and more plural, uh, more non-human, right? Um, some have said we should refer to it as the plantation of scene in order to historically tie it to um, slavery and like the theft of peoples and their transport to the Americas and to settler colonialism. Other people say it should be called the capital of scene. Uh, I mean, this is these are all good polemic points to make, right? To say like how we think, how we describe a thing shapes how we understand it and how we, we think and then how we proceed. Um, I am uh, personally interested in thinking about like um, fossil capital or energy capital as a kind of dominant mode, the dominant mode of production at this moment. Uh, and that's a really kind of different conversation. It shifts things away from the human and more towards the political economy, obviously, but also brings in the question of carbon, the question of extractivism. Anyway, all of these things, <laughs> this is all just to say that like uh, the larger point is what you name a thing really matters. And that matters for world building for fun. And that matters for critical inquiry and uh, politics too. Mm -hmm. Which I think is is definitely a, pre a prevalent theme throughout, I think, the, the conversation that we've had, which has been about two hours. Um, which is very much just, yeah, uh, the way in which we engage with world building does give us a critical lens into examining the world around us as well. And hopefully acting. Yes. And that, yeah, good point. Good point. Um, Brent, would you like to plug your Twitter? Uh, I'm at is a grapefruit. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend the follow. Um, the content does not disappoint. So um, you can find us, Cast Without Trace, at C, uh, CWT Pod 
on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so give us a follow. If you're listening on a platform that allows you to do a review like Apple Podcasts, please give us five stars. Helps out a lot. Um, Dunk, is there anything that you want to be plugging this week? Uh, yeah. If you are interested in uh, faith-based action towards issues such as uh, climate change and the uh, uh, prevalence uh, Anthropocene or the capital scene, um, if you are looking at uh, wanting to examine um, you know, especially Christianity through a uh, anti-colonial, anti-racist, um, and uh, pro-queer uh, lens, then I strongly suggest uh, SEM's, uh, that's the Student Christian Movement's podcast, uh, Spirits Rising, where we discuss, uh, you know, the theology of money and liberation theology, uh, as well as uh, more critical actions into the economy uh, through a Christian lens, but through uh, a radical inclusivism. Yeah, highly recommend. Um, I actually have something that I want to plug this week, which is weird because I usually don't. Um, starting in January, I am going to be releasing a six-part podcast called Gizcast, um, which is going to be about King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard and their uh, five-album run in the year 2017. So uh, be on the lookout for that. I've been in contact with their management, so we're, we're talking about uh, including music and interviews and stuff. So That's incredible. It's going to be really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, keep your eye out for that. It's going to be called Gizcast, G-I-Z-Z-Z. C-A-S-T. Um, I'm doing the I devil think... horns rock and roll sign. Yeah. Are you familiar with King Gizzard? Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. They're, they've been my top band on Spotify two years in a row now. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of an honor to like be in contact with, with their label and stuff and, uh, and get this sorted. Um, I think that's probably all that we have for the time being. Um, so I just want to thank, uh, Brent again for, for joining us this week. I think this was a very fruitful conversation. I'm really, uh, I'm really happy you got to do this with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah. And uh, yeah, keep your eye out uh, on our on our social net, uh, networks for any other updates about upcoming episodes. But for now, I think that's all we got. So thank you all for listening. Appreciate it. And we will, uh, we'll catch you next time. 